Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Margaret Atwood is one of the biggest names in the literary world. The 83-year-old Canadian author and poet has written over 50 books, published in more than 45 countries. Cat's Eye and The Blind Assassin are just a few of Margaret's famous works. But it was her 1985 classic, The Handmaid's Tale, that garnered massive acclaim and popularity. She sold more than 8 million copies of the English version, and the recent TV adaptation won multiple Emmy Awards. Her stories can be deep and dystopian, examining a world many don't wish to think about. I had the chance to speak with her exclusively around the time she published her most recent book, Babe in the Woods. We met at the University of Toronto, where she attended college, and we began by reminiscing. We're here, and you're our alma mater. Mm-hmm. And your most recent book, you wrote about the curious unfolding of time. Does it feel a little bit like that sitting here now where you study? Well, I didn't study in this library because it wasn't built yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have that relationship with it. But over time, once it did get built, it was a really good place to send my manuscripts once the book was published. So they're all in there. It's just better than throwing them out, don't you think? I know that I spoke with some of the librarians as I entered, and I know they're quite appreciative to have your archives here. Yes, it got a little bit backed up during COVID because there wasn't anybody here. So then I expect they got a slight deluge, which they then had to sort out. (laughs) But to be on this campus at all, I know it is a campus that you appreciated in many ways. What was the 18-year-old? 17. 17. Yes, I skipped. Of course you did. <laughs> Remember when they were still skipping people? Now they think it's bad for your Now they social. hold back. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> but what was it like to be here at that time? What were you like then? I was quite a lot younger and more ignorant. First year, I don't think it was a stunning success for me. Second, third, and fourth year were much better. So I think when you go to a new place, especially if it's big, which it seemed very big, although it was a lot smaller than it is now, you get a bit overwhelmed, nor do you know what you're supposed to be doing. I think a lot of people have that experience when they first enter an institution of higher learning. But I was at Vic, which is across the campus, and there were only four colleges at that time, and they were religious denominational. So St. Mike's, which was just down the road, was Catholic. Vic was originally Methodist. Then in Canada, Methodists and certain Presbyterians combined and became the United Church of Canada. So that was its background. Trinity was Anglican, and University College was open to anybody. So Vic was the only one that had hired women professors in the English department. The others didn't on point of principle. 
They had standards. Do you feel like having female professors helped pave this way? Or you knew then that you wanted to write? Oh, I know already knew that in high school, but... As I said, I was more ignorant then. I didn't realize how hard it would be. Says a legend. (laughs) But one of my professors at Vic was a poet and a well-known poet. And we also had a highly respected expert in Wordsworth and Coleridge teaching there. And we had another woman who did Chaucer and Shakespeare. So there were enough of them to make you feel that that was not a closed door. Yeah, you could see yourself. Well, I wasn't intending to become a professor, Mm -hmm. although I did that for a short period of time. I was intending to run off to France, smoke gitane, drink absinthe, live in a garret, get TB, and write masterpieces. And did you do that? No, (laughs) I didn't. (laughs) I went to Harvard because I said, I want to go to et cetera, write, et cetera. One of my teachers here, who was Northrop Fry said, I think you'd get more writing done if you went to graduate school. (laughs) Was he right? Yeah, I was going to be a waitress and write masterpieces. So later I did have a stint as a waitress, and it makes you very tired. It was hard to get home and then want to write. Exactly. Yeah, I also lost a lot of weight, because when you spend the day watching people eat, somehow you get less hungry. You grew up spending a lot of time in northern Quebec. And I wondered if, like, the vastness of that time helped you create this vast imagination. You know, when you look at the paths that writers take, they're very, very different from one another. So I don't think there's any one factor. If there were, somebody would bottle it and sell it. If you look at their backgrounds, extremely diverse. All I can say is that they tend to have been readers before they're writers. And I was certainly a reader. I was a very early reader because guess what? Nothing much else to do when it's raining in the woods. Did you really read Animal Farm thinking it was a companion to Charlotte's Web? Well, of course. I mean, it says animal and you think, oh, Charlotte's Web, Rabbit (laughs) Hill, animals. So I start reading and there are a lot of animals in it, but then they turn pretty dark. (laughs) Did it disturb you? Oh, it was very disturbing, (laughs) especially the horse who thinks he works very hard. He's going to create this wonderful society. And then they send him off to the glue factory when he's too old. (sighs) It's just heartbreaking. Were your parents always encouraging of you? Did they see in you? Well, they didn't want me to be a writer. No sane parent would want that for their child. But did they see in you that you could? Like any parent, they would think, oh, no, the arts, how chancy. How do you make any Mm -hmm. money? Who's going to support you? All of the things a parent would think, quite rightly so. Mm -hmm. So what my mother said famously was, well, if you're going to be a writer, you better learn to spell. And I said, others will do that for me. And guess what? I was right. We have spell check and we also have proofreaders. I love them. You have great editors. Uh, They're wonderful. A lot of writers are not good spellers because they spell with their ear. There was that. And then, of course, they were worried about how I would support myself. But you, you can get other jobs, which I did. I did have the lunatic idea in high school that I was going to write romance stories for true romances because I looked in writer's markets and that was what got paid the most. So I thought, oh good, I will write these romance stories that can't be hard. And I'll do that and support myself and then write my masterpieces. 
people think that it's going to be easy, but it's actually not. It's a certain mindset. And although I could think up the plots, I could not channel the required style. You talked about yourself as a reader. Why did you love reading so much? I don't think anybody can ever explain these peculiar tastes that they have. It was very engrossing, and it was stories. And I did have a mother who read books out loud. She was a very good reader. And my brother and I were both early storytellers, and we were each other's audience. But he was an early writer. Although he became a scientist, he wrote quite copiously as a child. So I was his reader, and I thought, I can do this. When you started writing this book, 15 stories that some are quite hilarious, some are filled with grief and loss, what connects them? That's a good question. Do they have to be connected? Maybe not. Yes, I think some of them are obviously connected because they're about the same people. Yes, they are. But some of the others are, shall we say, coloring outside the lines of social realism. If you know your fairy tales, there are a lot of animal transformation stories. There's even one about a snail. It's Chinese. It's a man who figures out that his very well-behaved and quiet wife spends half her life in the water bucket outside the door because she's a snail. Usually they're wolves, they're snakes, they're mermaids, they're swans. There's one about a geese, women who can transform into geese. So a lot of those, but not very many snails. But there is one. As you mentioned, you write about a couple that you have written about before, mm-hmm. Nell and Tig. You have said, or it has been written, that the couple resembles you. Quite closely. <laughs> Quite closely. Yeah. You and your longtime partner, your That's longtime true. love. Yes. What was it like to write about them again? Well, you know, life goes on. People get older and some of them die. And I know at the age that I am, quite a few other people that this has happened to. It's a very similar experience for people. Therefore, it's after a certain age, I would say, as they now say, relatable. But your idea of what old is changes radically. So when I was in high school, I wrote a story about this really, really, really old woman who was past all hope and just all sort of dried up. And there was Nothing else was going to happen in her life, and she was really old. She was 40. I know. I liked in one of the stories you said, we thought we were old, but that when we would still hike, our knees didn't give out. You know, the world, I can't help but think, has been collectively grieving in some way. We've been through a global pandemic. Yes. Did you write this during that time or some of these stories during that time? I must have done, for sure. So one of them, the one called Impatient Griselda, was a COVID project. It was going to be the Decameron. So you know the Decameron, Boccaccio's Decameron, huge collection of stories told by young people to other young people during the bubonic plague. So all of their relatives have died. They go off to a castle in the country and they take turns telling stories. So we were to pick a story from the Decameron and do a modern version. So Impatient Griselda is one of those stories that got included in the updated Decameron COVID collection. We did all various things to amuse ourselves and other people during COVID. For instance, I was asked by Front Row Center, which is a BBC Mm -hmm. usually devoted to theater reviews, Mary Beard. So she said, 
help, 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 help. There isn't any theater anymore. Could you do something, anything with a plague in it that we can use on the show? So my sister and I staged Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death using tableware. And we filmed it. We did it as tableaus, and we sent it off to Mary. I did the soundtrack. My sister did the sound effects, and we had the various characters. So Prince Prospero was a wine bottle (laughs) decorated up. The the courtiers were wine glasses turned upside down with hats on the tops and the bottoms. And I had a very good clock, which we used. And I had an excellent red death that we cooked up. Well, that sounds like a very fun, creative time. Yeah, so I think of early COVID, middle COVID, and late COVID. Mm -hmm. And our experiences were different during those three different periods. Mm -hmm. Early COVID, nobody knew anything. They they were washing their their celeries so they wouldn't get... I remember. (laughs) Do you remember that time? (laughs) Yes. We were getting things left in boxes outside the door. We were wearing rubber gloves because we thought it was like SARS, you know, get it off the doorknob. Mm -hmm. And it was before we knew anything about masks, so people were making these things, which were apparently quite useless, but decorative. We got some very decorative (laughs) ones, sequins. And then we were, what else were we doing? Oh, I mean, you know, making, cooking. Cooking. Cooking, baking bread. Yes, a lot of that. So you did have a creative time, it seems, during that period. Yes, it was quite bizarre. One of the things that we usually do in person is the Pelee Island Bird Observatory mm-hmm. Gala. So we, we did that online. <laughs> that was really an improvisation. But luckily, we hired some showrunners who put it together in the background. So I found myself up on top of my dining room table <laughs> photographing from above the things that we were going to put in the silent auction. <laughs> When you mentioned your sister, I thought of the story, Old Babes yeah, in the she Woods. Thinks it, she thinks it's A, accurate, and B, funny. So it, it does resemble the two of you. Very closely. <laughs> you dedicated this most recent book to your longtime partner, Graham, who yes. you lost several years ago. Was writing it therapeutic to you at all? What would I have been like if I hadn't written it? I don't know. But do you hope... It brings comfort to others? Well, as everybody knows who's gone through this experience, whether for a for your parents, I lost both my parents, not unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm. People get old. By my age, you've known quite a few mm-hmm. people who are dead. So it comes in waves. Mm-hmm. There aren't these stages that lead inevitably to a point where you're not thinking about them at all. It is a wave experience, and anybody will tell you the same. I thought it was beautifully written. Oh, thank you. The other thing that I found as I was reading your latest collection is that you're very hilarious. From time to time, not always. Are you funnier in your writing or in your life or about the same? Well, it depends who I'm with. Funny is only funny in connection with other people, Mm -hmm. isn't it? You can't be hilarious all by yourself in the kitchen, not usually. Unless you're reading your work and then you can laugh out loud by yourself on an airplane, because I did it this week. Yes, you can. (laughs) Coming up, Margaret talks about her best-selling book, The Handmaid's Tale. 
And will she ever write a memoir? We discuss that and more when we come back. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's talk about The Handmaid's Tale. It's definitely stood the test of time. You have 50-plus published works, and yet this is a book that continues to hit the bestseller list. It's because of the TV show. It's not just because of the TV show. Well, I was lucky, you know, because this happens to have been a stellar production, and everybody in it is good. It's so, true. And the showrunner, who is Bruce Miller, rather brilliantly hired a music video director. She had never done drama before. But if you look at it, it's very choreographed. And the costume designer's name is Anne Crabtree, took infinite pains. So she did really try out 50 shades of red to get just the right one. And similarly with the blue, the other colors, it's very thoughtful. It's because the book has also resonated. So it was resonating less in the 90s. Yeah. Then it started resonating more. And now, of course, you've had the reversal of Roe versus Wade. And everybody says, you're a prophet. I said, no, I'm not actually a prophet. I'm not a clairvoyant. I was just exploring possibilities and answering theoretical questions, such as if the United States were to become a totalitarian Mm -hmm. dictatorship, what kind of totalitarian dictatorship would it become? Mm -hmm. So people really just have to ask themselves, what kind of country do they wish to live in? Do they wish to live in a democracy? If yes, what kind of democracy do they wish to live in? Do they wish to become a declining world power or not? If not, you better start paying attention. Do you wish to tear yourselves apart, much to the glee of other countries? Is that what you wish your future to be? Yes, no. I used to work for a market research company. We were very big on yes, no questionnaires. I feel like you need to come and do a yes and no questionnaire for our country. (laughs) It's just a very simple question. What kind of country do you wish to live in? Mm -hmm. One of the things about all of your work is that there's beautiful glimmers of hope. I think hope is a built-in human thing. But you are a hopeful person. I think most people are in some way. So even if the hope is just what is going to happen tomorrow, maybe it will be better than today, possibly like that. 
we all have those little bits of hopefulness built in, don't you think? I think most people do. I don't think everybody does. Yeah, that if you go around the bend and over the mountain, maybe it will be something better there. So why not write a memoir? I'm writing a memoir. You are writing a memoir? This very moment. Wow. So do you think I should tell all or just about people who are dead? (laughs) Tell all. (laughs) It's not fair to people who are still alive. I think, you know what Robertson Davies said? (laughs) What? Well, he had had three successful novels early in life and then nothing. And then he comes out at the age of 65 with this other book, which is uh, Fifth Business. And people said to him, Mr. Davies, there's this blank period, and now all of a sudden at your age, you've come out with a novel. What happened? He said, two words, people died. (laughs) I read somewhere, and this was an interview, maybe you didn't actually say this, that you didn't think you would ever write a memoir. Is that true? Or was that? Well, that's the kind of thing you say in your youth. You know, you say that when you're maybe 70. So as you're writing your memoir now, how is it different than everything else that you've previously worked on? I can't just make stuff up. (laughs) And not only that, I have to fact check things that you think you know. So I do that for fiction anyway. If it's an historical thing, you have to say, is this the kind of petticoat they would have been wearing in 1867? Things like that. So with your own life, you think, well, when did plastic garbage bags come in? And when exactly did we get indoor washer dryers? Things like this you must know. So it takes a level of detail. Yes. Coming up next, Margaret shares her love for the Arctic. We'll be right back. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I am sitting here in a place that is a magnificent library filled with many of your archives. Why do you bring them here? I mean, obviously, you don't want to throw them out, but is it important that these works live on to you? So it's like anything else that you give away. You want to give it to somebody who can get some form of enjoyment or use out of it because you're not going to anymore. So once I've written a book, all the stages and pages, what would I do with those pages? There's only two things to do with them. Put them in the garbage or give them to a library. I read that you don't always sit down and write at a desk, that you, in fact, wrote one of your books on a ship. Yes, one of these stories in um, Stone Mattress, Mm -hmm. in fact, the title story. I began on a ship, 
because we were on staff and you always have to have something to pull out to entertain people if you get stuck, like you can't land or there's a storm or something. So I started writing the story and it came out of a dinner table conversation we were all having, which was, how would you murder somebody on this ship? <laughs> was there one person in particular no, that you wanted to death? No, no, we didn't have anybody in mind. It was just a theoretical, like, here's a <laughs> ship. It's in the Arctic. It's light all the time. You can't just heave them overboard <laughs> because there are people bird watching all the time on that ship. And there's no place to put them. They would get discovered pretty quickly. So Graham, who had a criminal mind, <laughs> said, well, you would have to do it early in the voyage. It would have to be somebody voyaging alone in a single cabin so nobody would notice they were gone. <laughs> you would have to do it on the shore, which is out of sight of everybody else, which is hard to do in the Arctic because there aren't any trees. Wow. Okay, so luckily there was a place where I actually sat at these cliffs of stromatolites. You could get in behind them. He said, and then you would have to have access to their cabin and make it look as if they were still there in the cabin. So you'd have to use their toothbrush, you'd have to <laughs> rearrange their bed, you'd have to put their clothes in the laundry and just keep up a phantom life for them until you got, you know, 2,000 miles away. And then it will be discovered that they don't pick up their passport. Only then when people know that they had gone missing. And so that is the story. That is the story in Stone Mattress. So when you're writing your memoir now, do you sit down at your desk to do it? Do you have a process or not really? People have been asking me all my life whether I have a process. And I know you're supposed to have one, but... I'm so old, I never went to creative writing school, so nobody told me I had to have one. So it's really quite hard to describe and very much an improvisation. So if you have a job, you're going to write at night, okay? Mm -hmm. I've done that. If you have a small child, you're going to write when the small child is asleep, done that, or at school, done that. So you just fit it in when you have the space. Where do you feel the most joy now? This is one of those what's your favorite author questions, isn't it? Can you not answer who your favorite author is either? No, because I'm too wise to answer that. <laughs> the others will hear about it and they'll get you back. <laughs> Whether dead or alive, they will hold it against you. I was going to say, but you do love to be in nature. I know you're a bird watcher. So where do you feel most joyful? I love the Arctic. Couldn't tell you why. It's one of those questions like, why do you like strawberries? <laughs> People fall in love with it. Not all of them do, but some of them do. Mm -hmm. The boreal forest, of course, my hometown. Mm -hmm. The Maritimes, the East Coast. My parents are from Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. So why do I always set my dystopias in Boston? <laughs> it's just so convenient. <laughs> and what about you as a grandmother? I think you would have to ask my grandchildren, two of whom are now quite tall, like enormously taller. So my daughter, she's taller than me too. Everybody is now taller than me. Just to pick me up. Look at my little mummy. <laughs> Put me down. I'm sorry I wore such tall shoes. It's okay, you're sitting in a chair. <laughs> but soon we will stand. Thank you so much you're for so this. You're so welcome. That it's was a so pleasure. much fun. <laughs> What a privilege it was to speak with Margaret Atwood. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please give Read With Jenna a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
Make sure to tell your friends about us, and new episodes drop every Thursday. The fun doesn't stop here. Want to join our Read with Jenna community of book lovers? Head to today.com slash readwithjenna to find our monthly book list and to sign up for our newsletter. You can also find us on Instagram at readwithjenna. This episode of Read with Jenna is produced by Danny Zhao, Malia McCreary, and Abigail Russ. Our associate audio engineer is Juliana Masterilli. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Missy Dunlap Parsons is our executive producer, and Libby Least is the executive vice president of Today and Lifestyle. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?